Wild Stories from Western Australia's Past. Hello and welcome to Wild Stories from Western Australia's Past. I'm your host, Carly Florison. This is the first episode today, and I'm, which I'm really excited about, and I'm just so excited to bring you these stories because I'm sure that you're going to love them just as much as I do. I've been obsessed with stories from our past for quite some time now, and I'm just really excited to be able to share them with a bit of a wider audience because I think they're really fantastic stories that people are going to love. Before I begin today, I'd like to pay my respects to the Noongar people of the Esperance area. That's where I'm recording today, and that's also where this story takes place, and also to the First Nations people of the rest of Western Australia. The First Nations people have a connection with this land that goes back tens of thousands of years, and I'd really like to acknowledge that and pay my respects to their leaders, past, present and emerging. Also, just a quick content warning, just in case you're listening with your kids, this story contains descriptions of violence and murder. So this is the first episode of Wild, and we have so many great stories here in Western Australia, but I wanted to start on one that was a real ripper, and I felt like this particular story had it all. Shipwreck, murder, a love affair, even pirates. Yes, we are today looking at the story of Blackjack Anderson. According to legend, Blackjack was Australia's only pirate. Was he really a pirate? You can be the judge of that. There are no peg legs, parrots or treasure maps in this story, but Blackjack certainly was a bloodthirsty, murderous thief. Maybe he had a softer side to him too. As I said, you can be the judge. The story of Blackjack starts in 1835 when a small ship, a cutter called the Mountaineer, left Kangaroo Island travelling to the first settlement in Western Australia, which is a convict settlement called King George Sound. Of course, these days we know King George Sound as Albany. John Anderson, who was otherwise known as Black Jack Anderson, was on board the Mountaineer, along with his own whaling boat, which is a small, which was a small open kind of rowboat, and also his crew. When they reached Middle Island, which is in the Recherche Archipelago, Anderson and his crew stayed and set up a sealing camp. So just to give you a bit of context, in the 1830s, hunting fur seals was a really big industry for Australia. Seal skins were one of our staple exports. We hunted Australian sea lions and New Zealand fur seals here. Fur seal skins were in demand for fashion, both in Europe and in China. They made things uh, like Peking wraps and London hats out of them, apparently. That was mostly from the New Zealand fur seals, which had a softer sort of fur. And the sea lions, who were much more leathery and had hairy sort of skin, their leather was used for covering luggage, covering trunks, and covering furniture. Both those kinds of skins were in demand. Uh, There was a big industry that went on mostly in the Bass Strait between Tasmania and the mainland, Uh, and also on Kangaroo Island and, of course, all around New Zealand as well. They also used to use the blubber of the seals and they would extract the oil from the blubber and use that for soap, leather, cosmetics, candles, oil for oil lamps, things like that. Aren't you glad that you live in this century and not in that century? Here's a quote for you. The modus operandi of sealers was to discover new sealing ground bonanzas and to indiscriminately kill as many males, females, juveniles and pups as possible before moving on to their next discovery. 
So let's just talk a little bit about Blackjack as well. He was a sealer and from what we know, he came to the Recherche Archipelago from Kangaroo Island and before that he was living in the Bass Strait. At the time, Kangaroo Island was mostly inhabited by sealers and drifters. It was a lawless, rough place with poorly kept records, so it's hard to find out a lot about what went on at the time. But we also know that he was, most probably, an African-American man who came to Australia on board a whaling ship and probably deserted from that whaling ship. There's a lot of misinformation about Black Jack Anderson, and, for example, this is from the Wikipedia page about Middle Island. It says... The pirate Black Jack Anderson based himself on Middle Island in the 1820s and 1830s to launch raids on vessels making their way between Adelaide and Albany. This is not true because we know that Black Jack Anderson didn't come to Middle Island until 1835 and there is no record of him ever launching a raid on a vessel, so he wasn't that kind of pirate. Also, just a little bit more about the Recherche Archipelago. If you don't know about the Recherche Archipelago, it's a group of islands that is off the coast of what is now Esperance, although of course Esperance didn't exist in 1835. There are about 105 islands in the archipelago and more than a thousand rocks, bommies, submerged reefs, you could call them obstacles to shipping in the area. Middle Island is the largest island in the archipelago and it's located about 9 kilometres off the coast of Cape Arid. It's about 6.5 kilometres long. Middle Island was first named by Matthew Flinders in 1802. Uh, There's a a hill on the island. It's a 174 metre high hill and it's called Flinders Peak after Matthew Flinders. So apparently Flinders climbed Flinders Peak and used that vantage point to survey the islands all around Middle Island. The amazingly pink salt lake on the island is called Lake Hillier. If you've ever seen a picture of it, it's startlingly pink. It's really amazing. I'll put a photo of Lake Hillier in the show notes for you. Lake Hillier is named for a crew member on Flinders' ship, which is, as we know, the investigator, and that man was William Hillier. William Hillier died of dysentery on the island while Flinders was there, and that's why they named the lake after him. So Anderson and his crew have arrived on Middle Island, Among Anderson's crew, there were two Aboriginal women. Anderson had kidnapped these women after brutally killing their husbands. It's said that he bashed them to death, and it's also possible that he killed their babies, although there's some conflicting stories about that as well. One of his crew members described this in some court documents that will feature later on in the story. But the sad thing is that this seemed to be a common practice among the sealers who lived on the islands of the Bass Strait. It was a common thing for the sealers in this area to kidnap women from the mainland and keep them as essentially slaves. It was an absolutely horrific thing the way these women were treated. You know, I think it really bears repeating that this is a tragedy that has happened in our past and we we need to recognise that. You might see these women or you might have heard these women being described as Anderson's wives, but this is absolutely incorrect. They were slaves more than anything. He kept them with him through fear and intimidation and through the fact that they couldn't run away because they were on an island. Um, One of the other men, called Isaac Winterbourne, also had an Indigenous woman living with him. I wish I could tell you a little bit more about these women, but as was common at the time, very little was recorded about them, and so we don't know that much about them. We do know that they went sealing with Anderson, 
um, but we don't even know their names. Their names weren't recorded. Another man who stayed on Middle Island as part of Black Jack Anderson's crew was a young man called James Manning. James Manning, we know, had paid three pounds to travel to King George Sound on the Mountaineer, but he ended up staying on Middle Island because, as he said, the captain of the Mountaineer, Evanson Jansen, was always drunk. Uh, apparently Manning didn't like it on the island and he kept asking Anderson to take him to the mainland, but Anderson refused. Remember James Manning because he'll come up later on in the story as well. From Middle Island, the mountaineer made it to King George Sound, or as we now know it, Albany. Albany was the first settlement in Western Australia. Albany was first settled in 1827, and it was a convict settlement in the early days. Uh, Perth, or uh, the Swan River Colony, which is what it was known as at the time, was settled two years later in 1829. We know from the records at the time that Albany had a population of 180 people in 1837, so it was a very small settlement when the Mountaineer arrived in 1835. The Mountaineers stayed in Albany for only a short time and then they started out on the return journey to Tasmania. There were some new passengers on board the, the Mountaineer on the return journey. Two of these passengers were James Newell, Dorothea Newell, his sister, and their sister Mary and Mary's husband Matthew Gill. Mary, we know, was 22 years old, and Dorothea, who was born in December 1816, was only 18. James was only 16. Their father, James Newell Sr., we think, we think he was a convict who was emancipated and given four acres of land to settle in Albany. So what crime was James Newell convicted of? He was one of 14 labourers who was convicted of rioting for a pay rise of one shilling. Seems like a pretty harsh sentence for rioting. Uh, this was in the Littleport Riots of 1816. He was originally sentenced to death, but the sentence was commuted to 14 years in a New South Wales colony. After that, uh, Newell settled in Albany and he was granted four acres of land by Governor Stirling. This is where the story gets a little bit tricky because, you see, uh, Dorothea was the third-born child of James and his wife Hannah and she was born in 1816, which is when James was convicted of his crime and then transported to New South Wales. The thing is, though, that uh, James and Hannah went on to have another seven children after that, and Hannah was back in England. So it's possible that Hannah miraculously just carried on having children after her husband had gone overseas, or, you know, perhaps not quite so miraculously. Or the other possibility is that this is a case of mistaken identity, and the convict that we thought was James Newell is actually someone with the same name. And James Newell just came out from England to Australia when the rest of his family came out in the 1830s. We do know that Hannah came out with at least seven of her children, including James, Mary and Dorothea, and they moved to Albany. So now we have James, Dorothea and Mary with her husband Matthew traveling on the Mountaineer to Tasmania. They were probably in search of better opportunities. Albany was such a small place and there weren't all that many opportunities there. Unfortunately for them, the Mountaineer's return journey was troubled from the very start. As we know, Jansen was continually drunk. And there's also a note in one of the records that says that he was intent on running away with one of the women. One of the women possibly means Dorothea. 
On the return journey, the mountaineer anchored at Thistle Cove, to the east of what would become Esperance. And if you know the Esperance area, Thistle Cove is in the Cape Legrand National Park and it's an exceptionally beautiful beach. Really worth a visit if you get to this area of Western Australia. Unfortunately, a storm blew up and the mountaineer was wrecked on Thistle Cove. It was blown onto shore. There were no no casualties, but the survivors weren't able to salvage very much from the wreckage, except for a small whale boat. Jansen also salvaged a large sum of money rolled up in a canvas and a small quantity of brandy and flour. Unfortunately for him, it was only a small quantity of brandy. The crew and the passengers stayed on at Thistle Cove for 10 days and they met some of the local Indigenous people who lived in the area. But by this time they must have realised that they were a long way away from Albany and that the closest settlement was Middle Island. They all piled into the the whaleboat, which is essentially just a big rowboat, and they rowed to Middle Island, which was a distance of approximately 100 kilometres. This journey took them three days, and I just can't imagine how frightening it would have been. They made it to Middle Island and settled there with Blackjack Anderson. But after a couple of weeks on Middle Island, some of the crew, which included the Mountaineers' captain, Evanson Jansen, must have gotten fed up with things on the island because they left for Albany in the whaleboat. Five of them piled into the whaleboat and set out for Albany. And as far as we know, their boat was wrecked along the journey because there is no record of them ever arriving in Albany. So we really don't know if they made it to shore or if they drowned at sea or who knows, maybe they took off and started a new life somewhere else. Uh, But Evanson Jansen and the rest of the crew were never heard from again. James and Dorothea Newell, along with Mary and some of the other crew, were among those who stayed on Middle Island. Life on Middle Island must have been really harsh. They only had a really primitive settlement there. Anderson, who was known as being a physically imposing person, was notoriously violent. This is what a contemporary of Anderson's wrote about his crew. As lawless as these men were, they looked up to him, Anderson, with a sort of dread. Anderson usually carried a brace of pistols about him, knowing that he held his life by a very precarious tenure. Anderson had a house on Middle Island, which was most likely a roughly built hut, as well as a garden and a well. Along with the seals, um, Cape Barren geese were a big part of the the sealers' diet. Incidentally, seals were almost entirely killed out by sealing along the Esperance coast before the government imposed protections on them. Despite Anderson's fierce demeanour, he must have had some charm because after a few weeks... Dorothea moved in with him as his wife, and James Newell joined his sealing crew. After a few months of living on Middle Island, you you can just imagine how high the tensions might have been on the island. Anderson had a falling out with James Newell and James Manning, James Manning from earlier on in the story. Manning accused Anderson of stealing a bag of money from him. Apparently this bag contained 46 pounds and 16 shillings in Spanish dollars and English silver. They had a falling out about this, about the accusation. In response, Anderson dropped James Manning and James Newell, who must have taken Manning's side, off on the mainland. He didn't give them any provisions, any water or any weapons. If you know this part of the coast, you know that it's a particularly harsh sort of environment. It's hard to find water and it's certainly hard to find food, especially if you don't have any tools. 
Somehow the two young men managed to survive and they set off around the coast, eating seaweed and limpets along the way. They made their way around the coast towards Albany for two months. This is a distance of around 600 kilometres. Not far from Albany, they were found almost dead. Apparently they couldn't speak by this time by a group of Noongar people, the Aboriginal people of the area, who fed them, cared for them and helped them to get to the new settlement. The Noongar people were rewarded for their actions in helping the boys with a small portion of flour each and, and I quote, a duck frock each to two who were most active and kind to them on the journey. A duck frock is a kind of jacket. Of course, it was a really amazing thing that these two young men made it as far as they did. Um, it would have been such an ordeal for them and such a long, long way to walk, especially if you don't have any food or water and you have to survive on what you can find along the way. So it's amazing that they made it as far as they did. But, of course, without the help and the kindness of the Noongar people, they certainly would have died. When, As soon as they had recovered, James Manning and James Newell went to the Justice of the Peace at Albany and told him all about Anderson and the money that he had stolen from, from James Manning. By this stage, it seems that Dorothea and Mary, perhaps, had managed to talk Anderson into bringing them back to Albany, which presumably they did in the whaleboat because that's the only thing that they had. So that would have been quite a precarious journey in itself. Anderson was apprehended and possibly that was possibly on this same trip to Albany. It was also possibly the next time that he came to Albany to sell the seal skins and he was brought to court. The court case was a huge event for the tiny little settlement. James Manning gave testimony, James Newell gave testimony, and, and so did Anderson himself. And it's from this court testimony that we know a lot of the facts about Anderson and his life on Middle Island. Aside from the fact that they're almost completely unreadable because they're written in quite old-fashioned handwriting, the court documents are just fascinating. The court case took place in September of 1835. In what was perhaps a surprise for some people, perhaps even a surprise for her own brother, Dorothea Newell gave evidence in favour of Anderson, and in the end, that's what led to him being acquitted. He went back to Middle Island and carried on the sealing activities and Dorothea, along with Mary and, and Mary's husband, stayed in Albany. One tiny little thing that came out of the court documents, which I thought was quite interesting, was that oftentimes in those days, um, if someone was giving testimony and they couldn't read or write, they would just make a mark like an X. And a lot of people did in this particular court case as well. But both Dorothea Newell and Black Jack Anderson wrote their full names when they were signing the documents after they had given testimony, which is a pretty good sign that both of them could read and write. Anderson ended up back in court in Albany sometime later, and this time around he was accused of stealing provisions from a boat, apparently an unmanned boat, and he just stole some things out of the boat. This time around, he received very lenient charges, and once again, he went back to sealing on Middle Island. Not long afterwards, it seems like some of his men got sick of Anderson, maybe sick of his domineering ways, and they killed him in his sleep on Christmas Day, 1837. One account of this story says they slit his throat from ear to ear. His body was buried under a pile of rocks on nearby Mondrain Island by crew member Robert Gamble and we have a court document that Robert Gamble signed to this effect. After this, his crew scattered, out of fear of being charged for his murder. Some of them went back to the Bass Strait, 
Some of them went overseas and, and we really don't know that much about where they went. There is no record of what happened to the Aboriginal women who were living with him on the island, but we can only hope that they made it back to their own home. Probably because of the time and the distance and because of the circumstances of the case, no one was ever charged or prosecuted for Blackjack Anderson's murder. This is from a newspaper article at the time. They got quite disgusted with Anderson's harshness and determined to remove him, but were puzzled how to accomplish it, as he was a stout, powerful man and being armed was always on his guard. At last, one day when he was asleep in the tent, one of them entered and, taking deliberate aim, blew his brains out. The corpse was thrown into a hole and covered over with earth. They then shared the booty and killed the native woman he was with, in case she should afterwards tell the tale. Even though that particular account says that they killed the native woman that, that he was with, uh, there is no other record in any of the other documents suggesting that they killed the Aboriginal women, so we think that was probably them just being dramatic for the newspaper article. Although, as you can tell, they were very violent people, and of course it is, it is very possible. Uh, we know that Anderson's body was buried on nearby Mondrain Island by crew member Robert Gamble because Gamble made a, a statement to the court to this effect, the court in Albany. James Newell stayed on in Albany and it's, it's likely that he had a relationship with an Aboriginal woman. Dorothea Newell also stayed in Albany. She was married twice over the following years. First of all, she was married to a man called James Cooper James obviously being a really common name during those times. James had built a house on Stirling Terrace. That house is still standing today. It's a bit unclear what actually happened to Cooper, but Dorothea ran a boarding house from his building after 1855, uh, and it was also used as a bakehouse and a confectionery store. After this time, um, Dorothea married a man called George Pettit. She lived to be 70 years old and she never had any children. Well, we don't know a lot about what Dorothea was actually like. She seems like a, a really resilient, interesting woman, and I certainly would have liked to have known her. It's possible that the relationships that she had, including the relationship with Black Jack Anderson, were all just relationships of convenience, just to help her survive. But we can certainly see that she was a survivor. It's especially interesting to think about Dorothea's relationship with Black Jack Anderson. While it may have just been something that was convenient at the time, uh, not long ago I found out some more information about that relationship. Apparently um, a Bible salesman made a record in 1837 of selling a Bible to a woman called Dorothea Anderson, who was the wife of a mariner. So it seems that even in the years following her time with Black Jack Anderson on the island, she was calling herself Dorothea Anderson right up until the, the time of his death. There's another interesting little thing that I found out. This is from an article by a woman named Sarah Hay. Sarah Hay wrote, researched and wrote about Dorothea um, in, the years, in the years after her relationship with Anderson. She talks about the fact that she went to the house that Dorothea owned with Cooper and, she, and at the time the house had been made into a restaurant. Here's a quote from Sarah Hay's article. When I visited the restaurant, I spoke to the then owners who were unaware of the early history of the house. They told me it was haunted by a little old woman who sat in the chair by the fireplace and by a man who came up from the sea to keep her safe. So even though I don't really think that we should romanticise Blackjack Anderson, he does sound like he was 
quite a ruthless person, it's quite likely that Dorothea really did love him and that their relationship was genuine. And whether or not you believe in ghosts, I guess you have to admit that it's quite a sweet story. Uh, James Newell Sr. built a house on the land that he settled, and today this house is still standing. It's called Old Surrey. It's one of the oldest continually occupied houses in Western Australia. After this time, the sealing industry declined, and for a while, salt was mined on Middle Island. The Pink Lake, Lake Hillier that we talked about earlier, the pink colour comes from a type of algae that thrives in a salt-rich environment, and so it's a perfect place for mining salt. It was a big industry for Esperance in the early days of settlement here. A very small railway line was built between the lake and the shore, um, just, just to make it more convenient to get the salt off the island. And this went on for some years. Today on Middle Island, you can still see the remains of a stone cottage that was built there, and you can still see the well that was was on Middle Island. It's an A-class reserve these days, but occasionally um, people do visit the island still, mostly by helicopter. There were also two shipwrecks off Middle Island, but that is a story for another day. And so there you have it. That's the story of Black Jack Anderson. Was he a pirate? Well, like I said, that's for you to decide. It really depends on what your definition of a pirate is. He certainly was an interesting character. Over the years, there have been plenty of legends and stories that have sprung up about Black Jack Anderson in the area. There was a legend that he hid a treasure on Middle Island, although, of course, as far as we know, no treasure has ever been found on Middle Island. And there was, as I mentioned earlier, the legend that he used to raid ships from his hideout on Middle Island. We also don't have any evidence of that being true. Also, there have been two books written about Black Jack Anderson, Dorothy and Newell, and the rest of this cast of characters. One of these books is called Skins by Sarah Hay. And yes, that's the same Sarah Hay who wrote the article that I quoted earlier. And another book is called Black Jack Anderson, Australia's Most Notorious Pirate, written by Elaine Forrestal. I think you'll agree that it's certainly a book-worthy story. Thanks so much for listening to this first episode of Wild Stories from Western Australia's Past. And if you've listened this far, thanks also for putting up with my um, occasionally dodgy sound quality. It's been a pretty huge learning curve learning how to do this, um, this whole thing, recording a podcast. And I really hope that I'm going to continue to improve over time. So please don't give give up on me just yet. The sound quality will get better, I promise. I'm your host, writer and researcher, Carly Florison. I'd also like to thank Micah Florison, who created the music for this episode. Special thanks also to my parents, Steve and Jenny Florison, who really got me interested in this kind of microhistory and got me started on this path of researching Black Jack Anderson. They did a lot of the research into this story as well. So thanks, Mum and Dad. I'd really love to hear from you, especially if you enjoyed this episode or if you've got questions, comments, or even if you've picked up a mistake that I might have made. You can find me on my website, which is wildwapodcast.com. You can email me on wildwapodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Carly Florison or on Facebook. You can like my page, Carly Florison. And like I said, I'd really love to hear from you. I'd also really appreciate it if you would rate, review and subscribe this podcast. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to stay tuned for the very next episode of Wild Stories from Western Australia's Past.